Today's podcast is coming to you late, but it's never too late. What are we going to talk about today? We got uh, we had two debates happen in the last week. We had a State of the Union address that we can uh, we can analyze a little bit. Uh, a good question came to mind too. Uh, first, I'm going to start off with how my week went and what I did yesterday. Why uh, why nothing went up on Monday? Get ready for the Fritz Cast. And this is Fritz Cast. How's everybody doing? It is uh, it is below 30 degrees. It's been below 30 for the past couple of days now. It is cold. I uh, I have my hoodie on, uh, and there's ice everywhere. We had our first real snowfall on Sunday. At least what I'm counting as the first real snowfall. The uh, the storm that happened before that in December or something uh, wasn't anything uh, anything significant. Stop stop playing it up this wasn't anything either but uh and now we're looking at uh get your bread and milk and eggs people snowmageddon 2.0 they're calling for like eight to ten inches of snow on friday i think in this region in the delaware pennsylvania uh northeastern region they're calling for something that could be potentially big so batten down your hatches and get ready. Because, you know, if an inch of snow pops up, we're all going to die anyway, right? Right, so, uh, yeah. So there's that. Uh, it's Tuesday. Tuesday, January 8th, 19th. And uh, this is going on. I'm recording it on this day and not yesterday. Uh, yesterday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So, first and foremost, a belated one. And uh, take the time if you didn't already, to reflect on uh, the significance of that man and what he did uh, in this world. And we'll just take that as a, as a moment of silence for him. Yesterday, actually, I, uh, me, my wife, and uh, her cousin, well, technically now my adopted cousin, I guess, cousin-in-law. It sounds really dumb. Nobody wants to say cousin-in-law. Uh, so we'll just say adopted cousin. We all went to Hershey, Pennsylvania. If you've never been, if you're in this area, uh, if you're ever visiting, I would suggest stopping off at the Hershey Chocolate Factory. It was an awesome experience. And I'm saying this as a guy who never went through it before. I've, I've lived here my entire life, never once, I don't think, went through that tour. At least I don't remember going through it. But uh, you go you go to Hershey's, I think it's like Chocolate Adventure or, wh- or whatever. That's what the building's called. And uh, you get a, there's an absolutely free Hershey's tour of, uh, of the quote-unquote factory. Uh, you hop in this like little cart thing. They send you off through uh, a fake uh, <laughs> a fake chocolate factory where you can see uh, machi- machinery mimicking how the whole process is done. And it's really cool to look at it. I mean, you know, you go, you go through and, and it does, it shows you legitimately how this stuff's made. It's just everything that you're seeing is uh, fake, but we don't need to talk about that. So yeah, you go on this fun little ride. That's the free part. And then there's a bunch of paid stuff that you can do there. Um, one of the things that we did, create your own chocolate bar. That was actually, that was awesome. Uh, 
you go, you pick what kind of chocolate you want, you know, milk chocolate, dark chocolate, or white chocolate. Uh, and pretty much whatever one you pick, it gives you this base chocolate bar, so to speak. It's almost like it's like a little boat. And you watch it come on the conveyor belt. And you can put in your own filler ingredients like uh, crisp rice, make it like a crunch bar, uh, pretzel bits, uh, chocolate chips, things like that. You can put whatever you want in it, and you can watch it go down the conveyor belt and stuff get added to it. And then it goes through this chocolate waterfall and gets decked out in, in milk chocolate on the top. And then it goes through a cooling process, and you can design... I mean, you design the bar on this touchscreen thing, and you pick what you want in it. And then you, you watch all the stuff happen, and then you go to this area where you can design your own wrapper for it with your name on it, and you can organize pictures and be all goofy with it. And then you can watch it come out of the cooling station and go to uh, the boxing line where it gets boxed up. And then you see this laser engraver write your name on the box. And then it closes up the box, ships it out. They package it, put it in a nice big tin, throw your uh, printed wrapper on it, and then hand it to you. It's really, it's cool. It's cool. I got it. Uh, I haven't really tried my chocolate bar yet. Um, I'm still fascinated with the fact that it's so cool. It's a cool little thing that I got. So if you ever thought, do I want to go to Hershey, uh, I would say go. And this is coming from a 26-year-old man who thought it was goofy and fun. There's also like a 4D movie adventure thing, goofy little thing uh, aimed for the kids, but it's fun to go sit there and, you know, live through it all. It's it's fun. So go if you, if you ever thought about going to Hershey. That's my advice to you now of course i said uh as i said in the intro uh we had two debates this week the republican debate was thursday night um and didn't feature my man Rand paul and of course we had the democratic debate who uh uh let's just for a minute what is with the democratic national committee and and the democratic party in general these these debates have been at inopportune times, if you ask me. Uh, this week it was Sunday. Sunday night at 9 p.m. That was, I believe, after the football game. But I'm not entirely sure. But Sunday night at 9 o'clock at night. I don't... To me, that uh, the one before this one, I believe, was the Saturday night before Christmas. Also at like 8 or 9 o'clock. Like, they pick very hidden times. Uh, I I absolutely, I, I think it's a, I think it's a, an attempt to hide Hillary Clinton. I don't think she's the strongest debater when she gets, uh, when she gets on that stage. Uh, I've said it before, I think, I think the Democratic Party really doesn't, really doesn't like Bernie Sanders, doesn't want to have him on the forefront. And that's actually an interesting observation to have because the Republican Party, up until recently, didn't really want uh, Donald Trump on the forefront. They were actually having meetings and discussions on how to tip the scales away from Trump. And now they're at the point where they're just sort of starting to embrace him. Uh, because they know he's not going away. 
which every I mean a lot of people thought he would be done and and left in the dust by now, but he's still leading up there. Ted Cruz has caught up a little bit to him, um, so there's a little back and forth now. Donald Trump brings up the birther issue about Ted Cruz being born in in Canada, which is a non-debate if you ask me. Just because you've had people like McCain run. And it's like it's like a stupid question of inconvenience, but I guess I guess that's karma for all the people who brought it up against Barack Obama. And you know, hey, prove 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 it. Show us your birth certificate. Produce the birth certificate. And then, you know, it's stupid stuff. But you have Donald Trump leading the pack and you have Bernie Sanders practically leading the pack for the DNC and it's like the Democratic Party really doesn't like him. They want to they want to keep Hillary on the forefront, and the best way for them to do that is to schedule their the their debates uh, at at uh, you know hidden times, quote unquote. So that uh, you know, think about it. Were you really thinking this Sunday night around nine o'clock? Oh man, what do I want to watch? Oh, I know, Democratic debate. You know, people force themselves to turn on these debates. I forced myself to sit through about half of the Republican one. You're not going to hear me dive into too many details on the debates themselves because I need to sit down and actually watch them start to finish. And it's a little bit hard to do that uh, because the media isn't really like... We're at the technological era height and the media still isn't doing things as good as they could uh, a lot of the debates that I ended up watching, I didn't watch live on television. I watched on YouTube later. But, like, I know the Democratic one, the NB, it's an NBC slash YouTube debate. That's what it was. I can actually go on NBC's channel and get their uncut copy of it. A lot of them I've been watching uh, bootleg style on YouTube. Whoever put them up. Usually they put them up and, and they don't even have one giant file of it. They're cut up into like part one, part two, part three, part four, part five. That's the way I've been watching them. Because uh, a lot of times you won't find these uh, these news organizations putting them up on YouTube completely uncut. Uh, or, or even full copies of it. Which is kind of sad when you think about it. Let me just give you an example. Going back to uh, the Blaze Network here, uh, Glenn Beck, after, I think it was the Republican-CNBC debate, which was like months ago, months ago, I think it was like October, when they had the, the debacle where Ted Cruz attacked the media and said this is you know why the American people don't trust the media, the Blaze came out and they said, you know what, that was a horrible debate, uh, some stupid questions were asked, and, and, and all legitimate uh, in all legitimacy, I think one of the questions asked of of Ben Carson was like, "Are you are you willing to are you willing to kill children and civilians uh, in order to get to ISIS or something?" It, it was really it was a baffling question. It was the one time I uh, wholeheartedly agreed with Donald Trump when he he actually jumped in and said, "That's a disgusting question." Uh, because it was like a gotcha question. It was like, uh, 
Yeah, see, war might kill civilians and children. Are you willing to do that? Nobody wants to kill children and civilians in war, but it is it is a, an unfortunate casualty of war. It's something that has to be known that's happening, and, and efforts to minimize that. Definitely. But things of that nature. Anyway, I don't want to get off topic. The Blaze uh, offered... To take, I, I think it was a, a February debate that's supposed to be on NBC or CNBC or one of the NBC breakoffs for the Republican debate. The Blaze said, look, we'll do it. If everybody agrees to it, we can bring you here into our studio in Texas. We can get a studio audience. We can uh, take a, a real different type of approach to these debates. Uh, instead of making it a, a huge spectacle... Of crowds and and all that, we can actually just narrow it down, make it a little more cozy and comfy. Get one on one with each of you, let you debate each other in a more open environment, I guess. Anyway, nothing really came of it. There was a big. It happened on Twitter. There was a big hashtag uh, campaign for it. Nothing's really come to fruition. But it made me think, just because uh, I'm the type of person that will YouTube debates from in the past and look at the differences from then and now, Uh, to me, the debates in this day and age are over the top. It's about packing a stadium full of people, playing the crowd, pandering... That sort of thing. And I'm not sure if I like that. When I watch these debates, I don't watch it for the spectacle. I don't watch it for the stupid crowd play. Uh, if I had the opportunity to sit in the crowd, would I? Maybe. Maybe. But overall, when I'm sitting at home, I hate hearing the crowd cheer. I hate hearing the, the, the jeers and the cheers. Uh, it's just, I don't, I don't like it. The purpose of the debate is for these candidates to get asked questions about issues, give me their stance on the issue, give me their plan on the issue, and it's hard to do that, especially like in the in the sense of the Republican debate. The Republican debates have been flooded. They're starting to narrow down. Uh, I would say they'll get interesting now that they're getting cut down, but honestly... Donald Trump's in this mix, and I cannot take him seriously. Which might upset or offend some Republicans or conservatives out there. And they, you know, I've come under scrutiny for that from from friends and, uh, you know, the like. For not being on the Donald Trump bandwagon. It's just not one that I can get a part of. I, I seriously can't. We're going to have a segment coming up called ridiculous Donald Trump statement of the week. That's I'm thinking about in, incorporating that into the podcast. Ridiculous Donald Trump statement of the week, where we just, every week we look at one ridiculous thing he says. That's going to be hard to narrow it down to just one. And that's not a joke. <laughs> it's really not. But we'll get to that in a minute. One of the things uh, that I really liked this last week with the debates, 
is uh, Rand Paul got cut from the main stage. According to Fox Business, his polling numbers were the lowest, or among the lowest, so he couldn't make the main stage. You know who did make the main stage? Kasich, Bush. Two names that I, I can guarantee almost nobody cares about. Yeah, they probably did poll higher on a national level, but then at the beginning of the week, not too long after they announced Rand Paul was cut in Iowa, he was fifth above Kasich and Jeb Bush, or above Jeb Bush, and and Kasich didn't even register on that poll. And Rand Paul said, this is unfair. This is the media cutting me out of the debate. I'm not going to do the undercard debate. Fox invited him to the undercard debate. At this point, I agree I, I, I agree with Rand Paul. There shouldn't even be an undercard debate at this point. It, they've had, I think, six debates, if not more. All of them had undercards. And they had names like Bobby Jindal, uh, Rick Santorum, who's still in the, in the game, Lindsey Graham, who is just ridiculous. And I think uh, among the other names were like uh, uh, Gilchrist, and I can't even think of anybody else. I know Fiorina was in an undercard, worked her way up into the main stage, and now she's fizzled out again. So Rand Paul boycotted it. Rand Paul did his Rand rally on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and he literally he had like a town hall type of thing, online interactive. He sat down uh, in a chair got asked questions, uh, sat in front of the camera and just, you know, got asked questions from Twitter and gave, uh, gave his ramblings on it, you know? Obviously, that's a more comfortable environment if you're, if you're in front of a camera and you're not in front of a crowd, you're not in front of uh, three, four other, five other candidates uh, flinging poo at each other. You know, you probably, you probably are more at ease and more on your element. Uh, sev- several news... Uh, Sites reported on Rand Paul doing that, and uh, it seemed to have built up a following. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, during every GOP debate, I, I don't know if you knew this, the last like two or three GOP debates, Bernie Sanders has gained the most Twitter followers or been mentioned the most on Twitter. Go figure. Uh, this last time around, Rand Paul was the second most tweeted about, or also gainer of followers. During the Republican debate, Rand Paul did make an impact by boycotting the undercard debate, not not going at all. And to be honest with you, I like the town halls more than I like the debates. If you follow any of the candidates on Facebook, anytime they're at a live rally or a live town hall type of thing, usually they they stream it live. And it's not like it's not the best quality, obviously, but. You can check in on a town hall they're having in Iowa or Ohio or wherever they are. Rand Paul does them almost every day. I get a little blip on my thing when he's live. And then you can go back and watch it if you want to as well. The point is, though, I got way off track there. I kind of jumbled nine billion things together. When the Blaze offered to host the debates, they also offered a, a method to uh, document it online using things like YouTube, where you could break down everything that you did in that debate, like question by question. 
you could just put the question up and have all the candidates' responses to watch later and go back and reference to it too. Or you could just have the candidates themselves and their responses. These are interesting approaches that I'm really shocked haven't taken place yet. If I, if I could have it my way, I wouldn't really watch these spectacle debates on television while they're happening. I would rather, you know, let's say I want to hear every response Donald Trump had to his questions. I'd rather be able to go on YouTube to the official source, not, not some third party that did it, where the potential for it to be taken down is high. Go to the official source, click on Donald Trump, and then get every question that was asked in the debate and every response Donald Trump had. Or every every response Ben Carson had. You know, fill in your candidate and, and the same thing. Or, if it could be broken down question by question. Like, economy. What is your tax plan? And you could just get every candidate's tax plan back and forth. What, what, whatever the cut was of time that they spent talking about taxes. That's how I think it should be done. But of course, that's a million dollar idea. You're probably not going to see it for years to come. So maybe if I get time later this week, I'll sit down and watch both debates and then I can do a, sort of a mini podcast, like a 15, 20 minute little spiel on how I felt about both. But one thing came to mind, thinking on Bernie Sanders and the Democratic debate. Bernie Sanders, and I don't think it was in this debate, but it was. Uh, it's one of his main points in his, uh, in his speakings, in his uh, political stance. He says health care is a human right. This is a very interesting newer idea that is still very much debatable in my mind. I was talking with my wife last night when it popped into my head uh, as I was working on things for the podcast today. And I just, uh, you know, I turned my head, I looked over to her, and I said, let me ask you a question. Is health care a human right, a basic human right that should be guaranteed and, and controlled by the government, guaranteed by the government even, or is it more of a service that needs to be paid for? And it was interesting what her response was. Because she said to me that she thinks it would be wrong to require somebody to have health care. It would be wrong to tax somebody for not having health care. And it would be wrong to, to force somebody's hand into a service that they don't want. A lot of people would say, who wouldn't want health care? Uh, and it's not necessarily an insane question, but it's almost like saying, who would want to get themselves euthanized? Uh, and that debate kind of came and, and quickly, quickly went when people decided that uh, if somebody has a terminal illness, they should decide when, uh, when and how they, they die on this, on this earth how they handle it. Uh, you know, some people can, you know, it, it, it's the same way that some people get a terminal illness and the docs say, here, we can treat you and keep you alive for several years to come or, you know, and then people say, no, I'm not, I'm not down for feeling sick for the last, you know, four or five years of my life. I'll just, I'll live it out. And when it takes me, it takes me. 
it's in the same vein. And I wondered if my wife said it that way because we're, you know, we're we're millennials. We're we're people that were born in the 80s, 90s. And uh you know, so it got me researching. I found this article on the International Business Times. It's titled Healthcare 2015. Why millennials avoid seeing doctors and what this means for rising healthcare costs. This is something that I don't think a lot of people think about. Millennials, younger people, don't tend to uh, go to the doctor in the same sense that, uh, that our parents did or our grandparents did. Certainly not on the level that we went growing up as children, where it, where it made sense. Growing up as a child, it made sense to go to the doctor you know, every year or every two years to, to get a physical, just make sure everything was you know, in working order. Once you enter your adulthood period, it's, it's not even, I would say, a sense of invincibility in that typical like you know teenager young adult phase nothing can destroy me i am powerful and eternal it's not that kind of stuff uh it's really it really is in the vein of like if i don't feel sick and nothing feels wrong in my body then why am i going to a doctor for them to tell me hey you healthy it doesn't make any sense right that's the millennial line of thinking. Now, this, this article's from the International Business Times. And uh, I believe it was posted... Yeah, posted last year in August. Go check it out. Healthcare 2015, Why Millennials Avoid Seeing Doctors and What This Means for the Rising Healthcare Cost. The article takes more of an approach of why it's bad for millennials to do that. Uh... Specifically in terms of the healthcare business, uh, that'll really make you take a look at it from the business aspects of it. You know, unfortunately, healthcare is about money making as much as is it about making sure you're a healthy individual. At the end of the day, but that also it it just brought into to question some other things. You know. If healthcare is a right, how do you pay for it? Um, because payment is is a big issue for not only for the people who need to pay, but for the people doing the service—doctors, nurses. As much as uh, as much as they do that, because they love what they do, they love helping people, they love getting people healthy. They also do it because those are good fruit uh, fruitful. Is that the right? term fruitful they, they they are fruitful endeavors they make money they make more money than i do they make more money than probably you do listening out there i'm not saying that that is a bad thing i'm just saying that that was a factor as well they they, they took it and said not only am i going to make people healthy but that's a steady job i'm always going to be needed and it pays healthy that brings us to Obamacare, the ACA, and where it stands now. Bernie Sanders coming from Ver- coming from Vermont, uh, with that has a single payer healthcare system. That brought me to an op-ed from the Wall Street Journal by a by a man named Jeffrey Norman, who huh, goes on to list a lot of the shortcomings of a single payer system in Vermont, Bernie Sanders' home state. 
So there's lots of question marks in there, and and I hope to hope to maybe break it down a little bit. Um, I'm reading through this this Forbes article uh, by uh, Vic Roy, posted a couple years ago in 2013. Uh, which goes as far to say, yes, healthcare is a right for an individual, but how to accomplish making it a right per se is 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 really it's a question that's not easily answered for anybody out there. Uh, I would love to get some opinions on this. Is healthcare a right, or is it sort of a hyper pseudo right slash privilege? And what should it be? To me, I, I've been racking my head over this for a while now. Uh, it's sort of like the example I, I, I gave to my wife was if somebody is if somebody got shot in the street, we don't we don't just leave them to die. We we call nine one one EMT services. He's rushed to the hospital. He or she's rushed to the hospital, and they're 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 cared for. They're given surgeries and and whatnot. They're billed later. So. In those terms, you would have to think like anybody that was in need needs to get the help first and foremost. Paying comes second almost. It's like if 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 you got diagnosed with with a, with a disease, we're not going to pick any disease in particular. We'll just say if you've been diagnosed with a disease that could potentially kill you, that's very treatable. To me, it would seem. The treatment should be given to you. You shouldn't just be left to die. Uh, but it has to be paid for. Whether it's up front or later. Or in payment plans. And, and That's where everything gets confusing and jumbled up. How do you accomplish that? How do you make it so? So if you're listening out there. I want, I want opinions. Either post it to the Facebook or tweet me. Or message me privately. I want to get some thoughts on that. I'm going to put some work into an episode that's specifically about healthcare, healthcare plans, and how that all works. But keep in mind the evolution of the world, too. As I said, check out these articles on, on millennials and, and reluctance to go, so to speak. It's very interesting, and it, it paints a, a different sort of picture. In your head than what might be the norm. And so that brings me to President Barack Obama and the State of the Union Address, or as so many of you abbreviated online, S-O-T-U. I really hate those. I hate the abbreviations POTUS, uh, Supreme Court of the United States, uh, because that's like SCOTUS, and it sounds really stupid. I know, I know, we're, we're into acronyms and shortening things online, and Twitter only lets you do so many characters, I get it. But I hate those. I hate them. I really do. I, I try not to write them as much as people do write them. So the State of the Union Address, and I always say, I always say take everything that anybody says that you hear on the news, take it with a grain of salt. The State of the Union Obviously, uh, reporting on the nation and the whereabouts of certain things uh, isn't going to be all rainbows and butterflies, and that's how some of it felt to me with Barack Obama. 
Uh, PolitiFact, uh, one of the things that uh, Barack Obama touted in his State of the Union address was uh, cutting the deficit, which PolitiFact uh, rated as mostly true, but noted that Princeton University economics professor Harvey Rosen has concerns about that deficit, concerns about the, the government's stability to keep that deficit at a low. Because things like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, the entitlement programs, uh, need substantial reform. And without it, the, uh, the deficit will not stay stable. Something that Rand Paul talks about all the time in, in the spending argument. Uh, he's very big on, on closing down Gitmo. Which I don't understand in the least. I, I, you know, I guess it costs a lot of money to operate it. Sure. Um, we've released a lot of prisoners from there. Very controversial when you dive into that, um, because that's that is of course uh, the prison where we send terrorists to, and we have released people who are. Dangerous and and some of them that have been released, it has been misreported. Some of them are very much under quote unquote probations wherever they are, wherever they've been released to. But it's a dangerous game. It's like uh, the whole Iran situation, where the ten sailors were uh, were captured for a day. The uh, the very disturbing photos of them on their hands and knees, uh, on their knees with their hands on their head. Um, you know, almost look like a, a military takeover type of thing. Uh, of course, that was negotiated and they were released. And people like John Kerry said, you know, people like John Kerry and uh, Vice President Biden said, no, there was no need for an apology for that, you know. And, you know, maybe there wasn't. Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was misunderstandings. But the fact that that's happened, Iran has tested uh, ballistic missiles. Um, they've been pushing towards the edge. They fired them right near some of our Navy. Uh, the taking of these 10, the, the, the just now releasing of, uh, of four prisoners, quote-unquote, civilians. Pat One was a pastor, even. Prisoner exchanges, things like that. A lot of it... It can't be handled and can't be treated without some special attention. To me, all of this stuff happening at the eve of the Iran deal being finalized, at the, at the eve of sanctions being lifted and Iran getting their money back, which isn't just an American thing, it's an entire world thing. Iran has a very sketchy history. Very sketchy history has constantly threatened us and Israel. And a lot of people, in my mind at least, on social media at least, tend to not take it so seriously, tend to seem to be quick to forget history. And history repeats itself. It's like one of the things I didn't like in President Obama's State of the Union address was uh, 
And he's done this several times, in fact, when discussing it on the news and uh, in things like the State of the Union, the gun town hall. I think President Obama likes to downplay ISIS, or ISIL as he calls it. And what I mean by that is that uh, a lot of times you will hear him say things like, ah, they're contained. He said that and then Paris happened. Then San Bernardino happened. So, he likes to... He likes to downplay it. He likes to say that it's not an existential threat. That it's not a threat to to America. To To how we are. It can't tear us down. It can't tear us apart. Which is good to say on our resolve part, but... There's questions of... How much can you downplay it without you causing even more harm? Because the way I see it, as much as you downplay it, that can be used to strengthen the resolve of people. As much as you say acknowledging the threat adds resolve to their... or adds to their resolve. It's very it's it's very touchy territory now... Is the Republican response the greatest towards it? No, I don't think so. As as I've said before, backing a Rand Paul type of you know guy, I don't think we can be. I don't think America can be at the forefront of that fight, calling all the shots and getting the work done. Because that kind of does play in to propagandas. One one of the strongest things I think I read it on Politifact. I'll have to. Go digging in my sources again to find it. But uh, I believe one of the top resolves or one of the top things that, that ISIS uses as propaganda and resolve is uh, American occupation in Afghanistan and Iraq. Stuff that has, that has already happened that's out of our hands. It's, it's America's meddling ways, so to speak, quote unquote. That's why I agree with Bernie Sanders. I agree with... Uh, I agree with Bernie Sanders, I agree with Rand Paul, I agree with any politician that comes out and says to resolve this issue in Syria, to take on ISIS, it can't just be America. It has to be a coalition, a worldwide coalition, especially of surrounding Muslim nations, surrounding Arab nations, taking on the problem, saying, this isn't us, we're tired of it, we're not going to stand for it. So those are just some of my... Basic thoughts on the uh, State of the Union address. I've gotten to healthcare too, and whether or not that's a right, and that's that's an interesting debate. I think that that'll uh, that'll play into a future podcast, even. But one last thing I wanted to touch in the State of the Union address is, is President Obama touted gas prices being another positive. Maybe not so much. If you get the chance, look up the New York Times, oil prices, what's behind the drop, simple economics. Diving into this article a little more deeply, um, who benefited from the uh, who who's benefiting from these gas gas uh, price drops? Here in Delaware, it's like a buck seventy-five a gallon, if not cheaper than that. Because I have yet to go out today and drive past a gas station. 
Obviously, we're all benefiting from it. Our, our bank accounts and pockets and wallets are feeling a lot better. Is that a good thing, though? Um, the latest energy prices, regular gas nationally now averages under $2 a gallon. Or, in our case, a buck seventy-five as the cheapest we've seen it. Um, this article says it is also disproportionately helping lower-income groups because fuel costs eat up a large share of their more limited earnings. True. Households that use heating oil to warm their homes are also seeing savings. But who loses in this? Oil-producing countries and states like Venezuela, Iran, Nigeria, Ecuador, Brazil, and Russia are just a few that are suffering economic turbulence right now, and even political turbulence. Gulf states are likely to invest less money around the world, and they may cut aid to countries like Egypt. In the United States, Alaska, North Dakota, Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana are facing economic challenges to this. Chevron, Royal Dutch Shell, and BP have announced cuts to their payrolls to save cash. They're in far better shape than many smaller independent oil and gas producers that are slashing dividends and selling assets as they report net losses. Uh, About 40 companies in North America have gone into bankruptcy protection. Uh... And then finally, the, the, the end piece of this article, the one that I want to read, is there a conspiracy to bring the price of oil down? There are a number of conspiracy theories floating around. Even some oil executives are quietly noting that the Saudis want to hurt Russia and Iran, and so does the United States. Motivation enough for the two oil-producing nations to force down prices. Dropping oil prices in the 1980s did help bring down the Soviet Union, after all. There's no evidence to support the conspiracy theories, and Saudi Arabia and the United States rarely coordinate these things smoothly. So, among all that, you have to wonder if President Obama's little quip about oil prices being so low is really something to celebrate, or is it going to be something that tips the economic scales of the world in the next couple of years? Very interesting to look at and see. I feel like I'm done talking today. It's been 42 minutes. I want to dive in to a lot of other topics. I'm trying to keep these at a nice, even amount, uh, so it's not too much of your time. But uh, I like to keep things interesting and keep them going and flowing, too. So uh, keep your eyes peeled for announcements. A uh, couple things I want to say real quick, too. Uh, You can now listen to this podcast uh, via SoundCloud, obviously. You can also go on marshcast.com, M-A-R-S-H, cast.com. Going there, um, there are a couple of guys that uh, picked up on this through Facebook, offered to, uh, you know, offered a space to put up the podcast to gain listeners, so I'm proud to be part of the MarshCast family, and uh, I implore you to please visit their website. They have a a host of products that you might be interested in. So take a look at them. We'll also post and and give them a shout-out on the the Facebook page. Lots of views on the Facebook page. Feeling very good about things going forward. And uh, thanks to friends on Facebook, I'm, I'm also diving in and looking into other possibilities to use this microphone for, like voiceover work. Voiceover work, can you imagine? In a world 
Who knows? We'll see what comes of that, though, one step at a time. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way that I can get this uh, up on things like Podcast Attic and, and iTunes. So you can just download it. Those are, on, those are all in the works. I'll keep you all posted on them. But uh, thanks for taking the time to listen, guys. I really want you to contemplate those questions, though. Gas prices, is it good that they're going down, or is it just a nice little convenience to our wallets right now that could end up being something bigger later? Uh, healthcare, is it a right? Is it a privilege? Is it some kind of in-between? Uh, you know, How does that affect other things? And we'll dive into that in another episode as well. And uh, if you haven't uh, watched these past debates these past weeks, uh, maybe I'll take some time later this week, watch them, and then do a quick 15, 20-minute episode where I just break it all down for you. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Until then, I'm Fritz. This is Fritz Cast. Thanks for listening. I love you all. I really do. I love you all.